There's two beautiful thoughts in that song. The first is what, what, what you've heard Bree singing, that he loves us as we find us. And then that second part is his love's too good to leave us here. One preacher friend of mine said, the good news about Jesus is you always get to come as you are, but you never get to leave as you came. So we stand face to face with the living God. There's, there's no preconditions for coming. But his love, his majesty, his wisdom is so rich that when it overwhelms you, when you walk away from that counter, you're not the same person who showed up. And everything that was good and right and worth loving when you came remains. And everything that wasn't gets healed or redeemed or transformed or washed away. And so when we, when we come here, we don't come here as a function of habit. We don't come here as a function of duty. We come here expecting to have a face-to-face -face encounter with the living God. And when we do, we leave changed. We leave changed. And if we can't leave changed, if there's something's wrong with God and there's not, or there was something wrong with our expectations, so let's pray, believing that God has a gift that he wants to give every single one of us who's here in this room and who's joining us online a gift so that when we walk out of this room or we walk out of this experience, we would say, God is real. And because he's real, I can trust him. And because I can trust him, I can move without fear, without reservation, without limitation, and without shame. Let's pray together. Father God, we come here acknowledging that your love is real that your love is great and that your love is all-encompassing and that your love is enough and that your love swallows up the parts of us that need to be consumed with the all-consuming fire. So Lord, I pray that the parts that don't belong, the parts that aren't honoring to you, the parts that are ultimately destructive to ourselves and others, I pray that those would be eviscerated in your love and your goodness and your compassion this morning. And Lord, I pray that when we walk to our vehicles and back to our relationships, something will have shifted within our very hearts that changes the way that we see you and changes the way that we choose to follow you. We pray these things in your name. Amen and amen. Can you say thank you to our team with me? Thank you so much, all. When I was in my mid-twenties, I was living in Detroit, and a group of our friends decided that we were all going to go out for dinner and a movie. And so we're all going to meet up at Nicole's apartment. So a bunch of my roommates and I, we drove over there, and while we were waiting for the girls to get ready, we were just kind of minding our own business. And eventually they did. All of them came down. And I think at this point my buddy Jeff was flirting with my friend Jackie. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but this happens with five-year-olds who are uh, romantically inclined, and it happens with 25-year-olds. When flirting happens somehow, it always results in some kind of chasing, whether it's like emotional chasing or like literal chasing. In this case, Jackie was actually being chased by Jeff around the vehicle. And as they were giggling, she was wrapping around the back of the car. And when she looked back to see where he was, she didn't notice that the front driver's side door was open. And by the time she turned around to see where she was going, it was too late. And the front corner of that car door caught her square in the middle of the forehead. And yes, she was bleeding. So 
like horrified and embarrassed. She ran back into the house. Her roommates took her upstairs. They cleaned her off. They decided that it was a superficial wound. She didn't have to go to the hospital. They put a Band-Aid on it. And when she looked at the mirror, she said, there's no way I'm going out in public. And so at this point, it got awkward because we, as a group of friends, we had a decision to make. Are we going to ditch Jackie or are we going to ditch our plans for the evening? And my friend Jeff came up with another solution. He got a hold of the box of Band-Aids and started handing them out to everybody else who was in the house. <laughs> and he goes, throw these on. And we did. Everybody put on a Band-Aid in the same place in our forehead at exactly the same angle. We gather around and Jackie, we go, look, you're not the only one. <laughs> Will you come out with us now? And she did. And it was glorious. I remember we got to the restaurant and the server did a double take when she looked at all eight of us. <laughs> She's like, are you guys in a cult? <laughs> no. One of us is actually hurt. Who is it? <laughs> Have you ever noticed that sometimes our scars can prevent us from living our lives? Like we get so afraid of how our wounds make us look that we won't take a step out into the unknown. We're so self-conscious about our hurts from our past, both distant and recent, that sometimes... We refuse to step into the kinds of moments that God is calling us into. See, if we're not careful, our, our shame will prevent us from living our lives. The shame of our scars will drive us into a life of self-protection. The shame of our scars will force us to hide from the wounds that we already have. And it will tell us that we cannot afford any more hurts. So we hunker down and we hide. The book of Hebrews gives an account of a man whose faith frames the way he sees his scars. The guy's name is Moses. He was born over 3,000 years ago in ancient Egypt. And at the time, his people, the Hebrews, are living as slaves to the ruling powers, which are the Egyptians. And Pharaoh's, Pharaoh, the Egyptian ruler, is so intimidated by the growing population of Hebrews that he orders the Hebrew midwives to kill every newborn baby Hebrew boy by drowning them in the Nile River. But the Hebrew midwives developed a plan, and they conspired to save as many boys as possible. They would, they would delay showing up to Hebrew births, and then they would go back and tell their Egyptian bosses, they're like, look, we don't know what the deal is. Hebrew women are much more aggressive in labor than Egyptian women, and we can never get there on time. So, that, so that, that's why. And so they're able to save dozens, maybe hundreds of lives. And one of these boys who's spared will go on to be named Moses. And his mother gives birth to him, and they keep him in hiding for the first three months of his life. And eventually they can't hide him anymore. So they concoct this just amazing scheme where they take a basket of reeds, they waterproof it, and then they put the baby in the basket, and then they park the baby in the water close to where the palace is. And so when Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe, she sees a baby in a basket crying. And when she approaches it, Moses' older sister, Miriam, who has been like hiding in the reeds, rushes out and says, hey, do you need somebody to nurse that baby for you? And the princess is like, that sounds great. And so she brings him home to his biological mother, and then at a certain time, they actually give him over to Pharaoh's daughter, and she raises him as an Egyptian. She raises him as royalty. She raises him as her very own adopted son. Later in his story, he hears about his roots. 
And he's curious about his heritage, about his family, and about his people. So he goes to the brickyards where his fellow Hebrews are slaves. And he's completely distraught when he sees the conditions that they're living under. So when he sees an Egyptian foreman harassing and beating the Hebrews, he looks around to see if anybody else is watching, and then he kills them. He buries them in the sand, goes back to the palace. The next day, he visits the brickyards again, and he sees two Hebrew slaves fighting with one another. And when he tries to intervene, they're like, what? Are you going to kill us too? And he goes, oh no. (laughs) Everybody knows. And when he learns that the report of this murder has made it all the way back to the palace, Pharaoh orders his death sentence, and Moses has to run for his life. Moses spends the next 40 years decompressing all of that, hiding in the wilderness, trying to figure out why his story is unraveling the way that it has. At the age of 80, some of you know this part of the story, God miraculously arrives in the desert, speaks to Moses through a burning plant and tells him to go back and lead the people out of their despair. While he's in the desert, Moses realizes that he has no people. The Egyptians have rejected him for his bloodline. He's an outsider. Pharaoh has rejected him for being a murderer, and the Hebrews reject him for not knowing them or their story. He he shares their DNA, but not their experience. Try as he may, he can never relate to who they are or what they've been through. So Moses is battling his backstory. He's a wanted murderer. He's a failed revolutionary. I think part of him thought that as soon as he killed the Egyptian, he would lead like a popular revolt. Everybody would take up arms with him and they would overthrow the Egyptian government. It doesn't happen. He's a fake Egyptian and now he's a bad Hebrew Looking back, you wonder if he replays that moment in his head. He could say, as soon as I killed that Egyptian, all I had to do was tell my mom, my adopted mother, the princess, that it was an accident. I could, I could kind of play the card of royal immunity and everybody would have let it slide and life could have gone back to normal. All I have to do is hide my birthmark as a Hebrew and walk away, cover my heritage and go back to the easy life. But he didn't and he wouldn't and he can't. Rather than pledge allegiance to Pharaoh and all the luxury that came with it, he forfeits his title and chooses to identify with the slave people. And when God calls him to liberate the Hebrews from the Egyptians, he's at odds with his adopted Egyptian brother who's now ruling the country. Can you imagine? Can you imagine growing up in all of that comfort, all of that luxury, all of that opulence, and then being a nobody for 40 years? years, and then coming back. What kind of thoughts are going through Moses' mind when he walks up the steps to a palace that he grew up in? But not not as a member of that family, but now as an outlaw, now as an outsider, now as a thorn in Pharaoh's side. You wonder if there are times where he walked out of that palace and said, you know what? I miss it. I miss that life. I miss the food, I miss the comfort, I miss the vehicles. In those days, they were chariots. I miss the clothes, I miss the power, I miss it all. And for what? To lead a group of people who don't appreciate me? To lead a group of people who rejected me 40 years ago? To run out into the middle of nowhere with people who aren't trained? 
All this sounds like a bad idea. When we read the book of Hebrews, that we're reminded that every step Moses is taking, he's taking as a step of faith. He's taking as a step of surrender. He's taking as a step of obedience. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 11, verses 23 to 29. It says, by faith in God, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was, had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. By faith, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ, which is interesting because Christ hasn't arrived yet, but prophetically, Moses understands in his gut that there's something greater out there. By faith, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures of Egypt. So he's saying obedience is better than the comfort and it's better than the convenience. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, Moses is trusting God for his past, and he's trusting God for his future. I believe that when we walk in faith, God allows us to reframe our scars from the past. He allows us to reframe our scars from the past. Listen to verse 26 again. It says, He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. When Moses looks in the rearview mirror, what does he see? He sees failure. He's failed as a leader. He's failed as somebody who can control his own temper. He's failed as, as a follower. He's failed as a man. And those scars of that murder, of the trauma, of the rejection, I have been haunting him for decades. And you have to wonder if there are times in that season where Moses is living in the middle of nowhere as a nobody, leading only sheep. He's like, God, I don't get it. I don't know why you let me do that. I don't know why you let those things happen. It seems like the wounds from his past are without significance and without meaning. And the truth is there are some of us who we look in the rearview mirror of our lives and we see our failures and we see our wounds that have been inflicted by others and sometimes we ask the very same question. God, where are you? What's going on? Why do I have to lug around this shame of failure or rejection or disappointment? And all I can say is this. God is a God who redeems all things. God is a God who redeems all things. And God is a God who heals our wounds in his time for his glory and our good. Pastor Rick Warren says this, he goes, God never wastes a hurt. God never wastes a hurt. Do you believe that? That the seasons in your life, even if you don't understand them in the moment, are seasons that are going to make sense later. When I was going into my freshman year of high school, I've told some of you this before, I was, I was hit by a truck 
on a bicycle that I was borrowing on my way to two-a-days and, uh, for football. And when that happened, I broke my tailbone. I couldn't tie my own shoes for a week. I broke my elbow. I couldn't work out anymore. And then uh, I actually had a scar in the back of my head that when my hair's cut super short, you can still see it. It's in the shape of a C where my head snapped back and hit the curb. So imagine this. Freshman year, big big school first day. Uh, your, your one goal as a freshman is not to stand out, just stay below the radar. And a horrible way to do that was with a massive chunk of your hair shaved out of the back of your head and 12 blue stitches in the shape of a C. If you want to stay below the radar, don't do that. And there were times where I was like, well, that was just an unfortunate accident. But many years later, about, about 15 years later, something happened that let me know that for, for even though I didn't understand why God let me go through that season, it was going to, it was going to make sense. I was a youth pastor, I was living in Detroit, and I was running some errands, and I noticed on a summer day, not unlike the day where I had been hit by a vehicle, a kid was lying down in the side of a four-lane street, and he had just been hit by a car, because I could see his kind of crumpled bike on the grass, and something in my mind said, that was you. That was you. And even though there are other people already helping, I just had this strange sense that I would, could stop, and I went over and just held that kid's hand while we waited for the ambulance to come. I wasn't entirely honest with him about his condition because he was asking if his ankle was broken, and it was. But I didn't tell him that because it would have been helpful, right? And, and I remember that I was able to, by the grace of God, uh, provide some assistance in that moment that I would not have been able to provide if I didn't know what it was like to be there. Lying in the gutter, scared, in shock, afraid, and alone. Have you ever considered that God might allow you to go through some things you wish you'd never seen so that you might be of assistance to somebody who's going through it right now? That one day God is going to use your hurt and your subsequent healing to be a gift to somebody else. See, all of our scars come with stories. And my prayer for you is that your scars that come with unresolved stories would be stories that would be rewritten as a result of how God is working in you and God is speaking through you. Another one of my scars is right here. I got about five stitches. I got punched at basketball camp. Uh, we, were, we were scrambling for a loose ball and the kid thought that I had like tried to hurt him because I'm not small and I'm really clumsy. And uh, he, just, he just sucker punched me. I wasn't looking. He like connected right here and split, split my face open and I started bleeding. And I remember my first question for my mom was, can we sue his family? Like, I was like, something's good going to come out of this. Let's make it money. And um, I remember my mom just very gently telling me that that wasn't the Norman way. And I don't know where that protocol ever got established because nobody else in our family had ever been hit in the face to the point that drew blood before. But uh, I think she was making the rules up as we went along. But when I told that story, I was reminded that what, what did I learn? What was the lesson that I learned from that incident? It's that um, sometimes people hurt us for reasons that aren't clear to us or aren't clear to them. And the call of Christ is to forgive, even when it's not fun, even when it's not easy, even when there aren't immediate returns on that. I believe that God wants to expand our vision of him in a way that reframes our scars from the past and in so doing removes our shame. Faith reframes our scars and erases the shame from our past. Faith, a faith that expands our view of God and his great love and how he works on our behalf can also reframe how we see suffering in the future. Now, make mo no mistake, there are three different kinds of hurt. Some kind of suffering just doesn't make any sense at all. And the only reason to explain it is that we live in a broken world. Some suffering is a consequence of my own poor choices. 
Um, somebody once told me this, everything happens for the reasons. Sometimes the reason is that you're foolish and make bad decisions. And uh, all of us have been on the receiving end of that, right? We're like, oh, why does this hurt? And they're like, oh, the reason that it hurts is because I did something that wasn't smart, and right now I'm, I'm paying the price for that. But sometimes suffering results as a result of your obedience. You do exactly what it is that Jesus tells you to do, and things get harder rather than easier. This is maddening to me. I remember when I was in Sunday school, I had, I had Sunday school teachers who would tell me, if you follow Jesus, life will go up and to the right. I would like to have a lively exchange with some of those Sunday school teachers today. Because I have found that sometimes you follow Jesus and things get more complicated. Sometimes they get more messy. Sometimes there's actually, things get worse in the short term rather than better. And the scriptures remind us that sometimes obeying Christ leads to short-term suffering. It leads to pain. It leads to rejection. It leads to persecution. But when we walk in faith, it reframes that. It allows us to step into that with boldness because we know that it's happening for a just cause. And that allows us to push through it. Psalm 69, the writer says, God, I endure scorn for your sake. Shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. Zeal for your house consumes me. I'm passionate about you, but the insults of those who fall um, on you fall on me. Sometimes when you walk with God, you incur the wrath of those who don't and won't. 1 Peter 4 says, those of you who are now followers of Jesus, you spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do. I mean, when you read pagan in scripture, it's just somebody who doesn't believe in God. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry, they're surprised that you don't join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There are people who will abuse you emotionally, psychologically, maybe even financially. If and when you abstain from reckless and self-destructive choices. It's part of what it means to walk in faith and trust and surrender. James 4, 4 and 5 says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity or hostility towards God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell within us? Sometimes identifying with the dark practices of the world means that we run against God. If that's true, then identifying with God, sometimes we're going to run counter to what the world invites and calls us to do. And there are some people who won't tolerate it. And it leads to pain. It leads to suffering. It leads to the wounds of rejection and scorn and stigma. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 17. He says, From now on, let nobody cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Christ. Paul goes, Do not mess with me. I have been wounded for Jesus, and he's got my back. Now, When I read that verse, I was like, oh yeah, Paul went through some tough times. He probably has some scars. Well, actually, if you go to 2 Chronicles 11, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul chronicles how he got those scars. How he got those scars. So I got punched, I ran into a piano, I had knee surgery, I had lung surgery. Like, I can run you down how I got all my scars. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11. He goes, don't mess with me. I bear my body the marks of Jesus. 
And then he goes, and here's how I got him. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Five times 40, 200 minus five. 195 times Paul was whipped across his bare back. You think he's got some scars? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day on the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers. I've been in danger from bandits. In danger from my fellow Jews. In danger from Gentiles. In danger in the city. In danger in the country. Anybody pick it up on a theme here? Like if it wasn't so intense, it would be like a, a Dr. Seuss book, right? He goes, I've been in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I've been cold and naked, and Jesus loves me still. You don't hear Paul saying, I've been through all of this horrible trauma for the gospel, and I'm really mad about it. He's like, no. Every step I took that resulted in heartache, I took because Jesus asked me to take it. And you know what? Out of love for him and out of love for you, I'd do it again. See, Paul is able to reframe the view of suffering that he has because he knows that Jesus is walking with him in it. That Jesus isn't asking Paul to do anything that Jesus hasn't already done. Our faith can reframe how we see our scars from our past, and our faith can reframe how we anticipate suffering that results from obedience in the future. And then ultimately, faith can reframe how we see our Savior in the present. And my hope for my life and my hope for every single one of yours is that Jesus is the lens through which we view everything that happens. We say, okay, based on what I know about Jesus, how can I think about this event? How can I interpret this event? How can I navigate this event? Our, our baseline for reality should be the character of Christ. Because anything that we interpret independently from Jesus will ultimately be warped and confusing. So let's look at some of the marks, some of the scars that God bears. Because the Bible says that Jesus has marks too. Marks that declare his love and his power. Marks that remind us that he is greater than our fear of shame, rejection, or abandonment. It says God, God the Father has our name engraved on his hand. Isaiah 49 says the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion, Jerusalem said the Lord's forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. And Isaiah says, can a mother forget her baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget you, I won't forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. God's saying, even, even if a mother could walk away from a child, he goes, I could never walk away from you. Every step I take, your name is before me. And I desire to comfort you in the midst of your affliction. You are my, we've sung it before, you are my beloved children. So the Father has his name, has your name on his palm. 
And the Son has declared his love for you with his scars. Listen to John chapter 20. It says, On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, they haven't seen Jesus yet. This is the first Easter Sunday. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after this, he showed them his hands and his side. And his disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Let me ask you this question. If Jesus comes back from the dead, he's coming back in a resurrection body. And because he's God, he could pick any model of body that he wanted. Am I right? So Jesus could have picked a scar-free version of himself. He doesn't. Why does Jesus appear to the disciples with his scars? Because he needs them to know that he is the one who died for them. The last picture that they saw of Jesus was a Jesus with scars. The next picture that they see of Jesus is a risen Jesus with scars. There's no mistaken identity. The scars prove that he's the same one. And the scars prove that he loved them. That he gave his very life for their crimes against him and against themselves and against each other. And the scars also prove what? That death has no power over Jesus. And if it has no power over Jesus, it has no power over us. Full stop. End of story. So the scars of Jesus remind us that pain is inevitable in this life, but pain is not the end of the story. God redeems every tragedy, every trauma, every heartache for his glory and our good. And if Jesus was not afraid to embrace it out of obedience to the Father, then we can fully expect to walk in those footsteps as well. Sometimes when I get scared, it's important for me to know how the story ends. To know how the story ends. And we have another picture of Jesus bearing marks in Revelation chapter 19. It says this, I saw heaven open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Do you know that Jesus calls himself faithful and true? It's like, I would never lie to you and I would never abandon you. And I think a lot of us get stuck in our lives because we're not sure Jesus is a Jesus who keeps his promises or Jesus is a Jesus who will be there. And Jesus says, you can know that both of those are lies. I am always faithful and I'm always true. Trust me. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped with blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's stop there for a second. This is where things get interesting. You ever notice that when there's, there's like a title fight, some boxers will actually walk in with a cape, and on the cape will have their like name, their brand. What's it supposed to do? It's supposed to breed enthusiasm for the followers and intimidation for the opponent. The book of Revelation says that Jesus has his name on his robe, and where else? On his thigh. Anybody else know that Jesus has had ink done? It's not any stained glass, but it's, it's in the Bible. And what does Jesus tell us with these words? That he is what? King of kings and Lord of lords. 
He goes, I'm going to show it with you with what I'm about to do, but just so there's not any question, it's on my shirt and on my leg. And I don't know about you, but this passage tells us what about Jesus? He's faithful and true. He's the Word of God. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. Can I trust him? Yes, I can. Is that the kind of God who will take the loose ends of my past and tie them up together? In time? Is that the kind of God who will walk with me into persecution, pain, suffering, or inconvenience in the future? Yes, it is. Is that the kind of God who rules over all of the universe at the end of the day when the story is over? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Can I trust Him? I can. I can. And my view of God will change the way that I think about my past and my view of God will infuse my life with courage as I step into the unknown. Faith. Faith buries our shame and faith infuses us with boldness as we step forward into the fray.